The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 886, 886, John chapter 1, page 886. This past week, I was surprised when I went to various dictionaries to see how they would define Christmas. The Oxford English Dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and of course, the illustrious Dictionary.com, they all, in one way or another, define Christmas as the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. The songs on the radio might tell you that Christmas is about lights and trees and candy canes, broken hearts, shoes, of course, uh, presents, stockings, or a jolly version of the Cookie Monster in a red suit, but it's not. Uh, Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And in fact, the best place for us to find the real definition of Christmas is not even in a dictionary, but it's in God's Word. And so that's why for the next three weeks, we are thinking about what three writers of Scripture say about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This morning, we begin with the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John was written shortly after the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Helpfully, John, the the gospel writer, he tells us the purpose of his writing actually at the end of his gospel. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That purpose statement at the end of uh, John's gospel informs our reading of the beginning of John's gospel that we're looking at together. And John is not just writing to provide you with facts about who Jesus is and what he did, but he is also writing to persuade you to put your faith in Jesus. Each of the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they begin with their own unique starting place. So Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy. Mark begins with Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And Luke begins with the days of Herod in the historical context of Jesus' birth. But John's gospel begins in the beginning. We could even say that John's gospel begins before the beginning. In the opening of his gospel, John emphasizes that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, came to earth. That is the staggering claim that John makes in the opening of his gospel. That Christmas, according to John, is about God coming to earth. God the Son took on human flesh to bring light to this dark world, to bring spiritual orphans into God's family, and to bring grace to the guilty. That's the teaching of this text that we're looking at together this morning. And if I could boil it down into a simple sentence, it would be this. God the Son came to earth to bring grace to the guilty. That's the sermon in a sentence, that God the Son came to earth to bring grace to the guilty. There should be a full outline in the bulletin provided that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point, that God the Son came to bring you out of darkness. 
God the Son came to bring you out of darkness. Follow along as I read John 1, verses 1 to 9. John 1, verses 1 to 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Let's just pause there. You see here that John's gospel opens with an unmistakable echo of the very beginning of the Bible. Remember Genesis 1-1 and how it opens? It opens with these words, In the beginning was God. And what does John do in John 1-1? He says, In the beginning was the Word. You see what John is doing with the very opening of his gospel? He's telling us that the Word is God. The very God who was at the very beginning. Who is this eternal Word? The Word is none other than Jesus. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. If you skip down to verse 14, go ahead and look down there at verse 14 of John 1. John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, God the Son, Jesus, was with God. You see that there in verse 1. The Word, God the Son, Jesus was in the beginning with God. You see that there in verse 2. Jesus proclaims this about himself in John chapter 17, verse 5. When he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Word was with God. But you see what the end of verse 1 also says? Makes clear that the Word was God. Both are true. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is the second person of the triune Godhead. And the person, the Word, was with, was God the Father. That's how the Word can be with God and be with and be God. John's Gospel and the rest of the Bible teaches that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. Same in essence, equal in power, and glory. In these first few verses, John is differentiating between the two distinct persons, two distinct persons within the triune Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. John is telling us that the Word is God the Son, and therefore the second person of the triune Godhead. This means that he was not only present at the creation of the world, but involved with creating the world. Think back to Genesis 1. Repeatedly we're told, and God said, and God said, and God said, and then light or plants or animals or man was created. God spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. Here in verses 3 and 4, John is talking about the word and his creative power. John is telling us that God the Son was God the Father's agent in creation. John tells us that the Word is the creator of absolutely everything. Positively, John says that all things were made through Him, 
And then he restates the same point in a negative way by saying, without him was not anything made that was made. The word made absolutely everything and everyone. And the Apostle Paul also stresses the fact that Jesus made absolutely everything and everyone when he says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The word created the universe and all that is in it. Jesus created man. And because Jesus had life in and of himself, as he says in John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus gave life and light to men. Jesus' act of giving life to mankind, as John describes it, was an act of illumination. Just like Jesus enlightened the world through creating the sun and the moon and the stars, so Jesus enlightened men by giving them life and breath. John is working on some very deep theology right in the opening of his gospel. But do not detach yourself from the simple and profound reality that the Creator created you. The Creator has a personal and intimate connection with you. The one who eternally existed with the Father before the creation of the world is very God and gave you life and light. Jesus knows your every bone and blood vessel and beauty mark. He made them all. The Creator created you and came to rescue you from darkness. Look at verse 5. Do you see it there? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, once again, John is hearkening back to Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. Think of Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3, where we read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You see, at the creation, light overcame the darkness. Light and darkness are not equal forces. Try as it might, darkness has not overcome the light. Christian, you need to remember that, that light and darkness are not equal forces. The light of the Lord Jesus is far superior to all the darkness we experience in this world. Jesus is not only the one who enlightens the dark world by hanging the sun and the moon and the stars in, their sky, in the sky, nor is he merely the one who gives mankind physical life and light, but he is also the one who preeminently overcomes the darkness. Just consider what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says there, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the promise of the Savior to you. If you don't want to walk in darkness, you follow him and you will have the light of life. This one who eternally existed before creation began, has entered into the created order to fully and finally dispel the darkness that enshrouds this world and enslaves you in sin. This is why John has written this gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah who will save us from this dark world and the darkness of our own hearts. 
and that in him we might have life in his name and be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 46. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friend, think about this. If the very creator had to come to this world in order to overcome the darkness and call you out of darkness, how powerful must the darkness be if God is the one who had to overcome it? In Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul proclaims, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Do you hear Paul a light, uh, making Christians, formerly, formerly unconverted the lost, parallel with the darkness there? Do not fool yourself into thinking that you can rescue yourself from the darkness that you know is in your heart. Your only hope of conquering the darkness is the Creator of light. And take it to heart, it may seem like the darkness is winning, but it has certainly already been overcome by Jesus in creation and redemption, and Jesus will finally overcome the darkness in the consummation. Verses 6 through 8, they tell us that this was the purpose of the world's of, of the words preparatory witness. God the Father sent a mere man ahead of his son, so that that sent man would prepare the world for the arrival of his son. His name, as we see here, was John. He came to bear witness to the light, the word made flesh. We know him most commonly as John the Baptist, and he appears in all of the Gospels. John the Baptist is a different John than the writer of this Gospel, but still we see that John the Baptist is an incredibly important person. After all, he was sent by God. And this phrase that he was sent by God is an allusion to the Old Testament scriptures of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, that foretold the coming of John the Baptist. Now just think of this, that God sent John before he sent his son. Think of how God is sovereignly ordering redemptive history. It's astounding that God sent his son, just as he said in the way that he said, including a preparatory witness going before him. John the Baptist was divinely commissioned and sent for a specific task to bear witness about the light of the world, the coming of the Son of God. And we see here that John the Baptist bears witness to the light so that, there's a purpose clause there, all might believe through him. John the Baptist was like a candle compared to the blazing sun who is coming into the world. He was a little light pointing to the great light of the world. He directed all attention away from himself and to Jesus. The aim and goal of John the Baptist's witness was that all might believe through Jesus. And this word believe in verse 7, it describes personal trust in Jesus. It's a word that John will use in his gospel almost 100 times. Do you know what it means to believe? It means to know, to be convinced of, and to trust in. So to, to believe in Jesus means to know who Jesus is and what he has done. It means to be convinced of his saving power. And it means to entrust yourself to him alone for salvation. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know who he is and what he's done for you? Are you convinced that he is able to save? You should be by how he has overcome death in his resurrection. Do you trust him alone for salvation? Believe in him today. 
This was the very reason for the coming of the Son of God into the world. To call you out of the darkness of sin and into the light of His salvation. Is this not the staggering reality of Christmas? That the Creator came for you. And Christian, continue to believe in Jesus' power over darkness. There are no doubt some you love who are lost in darkness. Pray for Jesus to overcome the darkness in their lives. Labor like John the Baptist did with a patient and faithful and loving witness to Jesus so that you might see the darkness overcome in their lives because of God's grace and God's power. Like the Creator came, so you come to them with a message of good news about the Creator who came for them. Jesus came, not merely to call sinners out of darkness and into light, but also to call sinners, those who are spiritual orphans, into His spiritual family. It's one thing for God to come and rescue us from sin, and it's another to come and wrap us in His strong and loving fatherly arms. And that is what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is the second thing we learned from John's prologue, that God the Son came to bring you into God's family. Follow along as I read John, uh, verses, uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Begin there in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In these verses, John speaks of Jesus' arrival, Jesus' rejection, and Jesus' reception. We see the words arrival there in verses 9 and 10. In these verses, we are reminded that Jesus is the light. But did you notice what John calls Jesus now? He is the True light. Jesus is the original and uncreated light. He is the pure and undefiled light. He is the conquering and unfailing light. He is the faithful and unwavering light. And this true light, for our good and for God's glory, John says, was coming into the world. Now often when Uh, John uses that word world in his gospel. He uses it not as a reference to the physical earth or the general creation, but to the people of the world. After all, humans know dirt does not. And John regularly uses this word world actually in a negative manner. The world in John's gospel is filled with sin, John 1.29 and 16.8. The world is in need of life, John 6.33. The world hates in John 7, 7 and is subjected to judgment in John 9, 39. The world is under Satan's rule in John 12, 29. And it is a place of darkness in John 12, 46. The word was coming into this world, this world stained by sin, a world in need of redemption and salvation. This is the world that you, apart from grace, participate in. You live contrary to your Creator. We must not forget that this world was made through Jesus. That's the point of the middle of verse 10, which is why it's shocking that the world did not know and love its creator when he came to them. 
The idea of knowing here has this relational connotation. So, for example, in John 10, 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. There's a personal knowledge, a, a love and affection between Jesus and his people. But because the people of this world by nature live in the darkness, the world does not know Jesus. It does not love Jesus. It does not want to know Jesus. It does not want to love Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 3.19, The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light. Apart from the Holy Spirit at work within us, giving us a love for Jesus, this is true of all of us. wonder... Have you, have you ever been to a party or some social gathering where there's somebody there that you know, they, they don't actually like you? And you're, you're there, you see them, and you're trying to be pleasant. You, you want to make eye contact with them. You want to smile, but they ignore you. They always turn their body just so you're in the periphery or they're out of their sight. Friends, that's how we, by nature, live with God. We don't want anything to do to him. We, we know he's there, but we don't want to look at him. We don't want to hear what he say, has to say to us. We ignore him. That's how we live by nature. That's why we need the work of the Holy Spirit within us. The world did not want to know Jesus. The world did not want to have a relationship with Jesus. The world crucified the Word made flesh. The creator of the world came and the world rejected him. And still John, he takes us a step lower there in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Yes, Jesus came to humanity in general, but he especially came to his own people. Jesus came to the people of Israel, the people that he called out of the darkness of slavery in Egypt and made to be his treasured possession, as Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says. God especially set his love upon the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the ones through whom the Messiah would come. They had the privileges of God's covenant, privileges of God's kings, privileges of priests who would mediate the relationship between them and God. Privileges of prophets who would speak the word of God to them. And the privileges of God's scriptures. The people of Israel were waiting for the long-expected Messiah who would restore the fortunes of Israel. And yet, when he came, when the Messiah came, they closed their hearts to him. And along with the world, they crucified him. But, as verse 12 says, don't you love that word there in verse 12? But Jesus, he was not totally and utterly rejected. No, he was received by some. And all who did receive him, that is to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is yet another way to relate to Jesus. You don't have to reject Jesus. You can receive Jesus. This is one of the glorious reasons why Jesus came. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God the Son came to redeem you and receive you into God's family. This privilege of being a child of God only belongs to those who receive Jesus. Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Well, how does that happen? How does someone come to the Father through Jesus? Well, verse 13 tells us 
tells us negatively, actually, you cannot be born into the family of God, God by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You can't be born into God's family by blood. It doesn't matter if you're descended from Abraham. You cannot be born into God's family by the will of the flesh. Neither your desire nor your deeds can make you a member of God's family. Your works don't make you a member of God's family, nor of the will of man. Someone else's desire, someone's deeds, like your parents, they can't bring you into God's family. It doesn't matter if you're a child born into a Christian home and family. Physical birth is not how you become one of God's true children. History and lineage and church attendance and baptism will not save you. That's not how you become one of God's children. And to the children and young people here this morning, I want to make sure you're hearing this. God's acceptance of you, His adoption of you, His receiving you into His family will not be based upon your parents' faith or their persistence in bringing you to church. Though parents, you should bring your children to church and hear God's Word. In the end, If you are to be given the right to become one of God's children, you must be born of God. That means that you must, that God must send His Spirit into your heart to convince you that you're a sinner and lost in darkness. God must send His Spirit into your heart and show you that Jesus is the Savior who lived for you, who died for you, and who rose again from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. This is how you are born of God, through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. This new birth is revealed when you personally receive and believe in Jesus. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not one of God's children, I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see your sin and your lostness in darkness. You're ignoring of God, ignoring His call to come and consider His grace. Friend, I urge you to see that you have rebelled against God. You violated His law, lived your own way rather than His way. And I urge you to see that you are in danger of facing God's just punishment for your sin forever in hell. But I also urge you to see the good news that John has been declaring this morning, that the Creator came to rescue you from that darkness and the punishment that your sins deserve, that Jesus came to bring you into God's family, and that He has Fully man and fully God has lived the life that you've not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And that He, out of love, laid down His life on the cross for sinners like you and me. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that Jesus died in the place of sinners who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. But Jesus didn't just die. God the Father showed us all that He accepted the work of His Son on behalf of sinners like you and me by raising the Lord Jesus from the dead on the third day. And now, all those who trust in His Son become sons and daughters of the living God. Friend, would you turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Be received into His family as one of His adopted children. And when you are received into His family, He loves you through all eternity. There is no fear that you'll be lost. Your loving father loses not one of his children. His son has rescued them all. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. And Christian, remember your adoption. Remember your adoption into the family of God. It displays God's immense generosity and grace to you. 
the sending and the suffering of God's one and only most beloved son was what your adoption cost. That was the price paid for your adoption. And God was pleased to pay the price. God the Father didn't need to welcome any more children into his family. He already had a son. But out of his great love, he welcomes more sons and daughters into his family by faith. This is part of the good news of Christmas, that God the Son came to bring you into God's family. We could say it yet another way, that God the Son came to bring you grace. This is our third point. Follow along as I read John 1, verses 14 to 18. John 1, beginning there, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. These verses are stuffed full of rich theology and redemptive truth about Jesus. They announce Jesus' arrival, his dwelling, identity, and especially his glory and gracious person. John 1.14 is in many ways the ultimate summary of the incarnation. Now the incarnation is simply the term we use to say that God the Son took on flesh and entered the world he created. That's the only way that we could be saved. Without any loss to his deity, God the Son took human flesh to his divine person. While continuing to be fully God, he took on full humanity. We know from Matthew and Luke that this took place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Next year, uh, Lord willing, A number of women in our congregation are going to give birth. Uh, Little boys and girls are in their wombs right now. That's how real humans come into this world. They are carried in their mother's wombs and they are born. That's what happened with Jesus. Think of the humility and gracious condescension of the eternal son in becoming a baby in a womb. It's remarkable. The infinite in an infant, as Charles Spurgeon once said. Or as we sang earlier, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. In the words of the old catechism, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Beloved, God the Son reveals to us the dignity with which we should live in our fleshly bodies. So let us not degrade them or despise them. Let us honor God with the bodies He gave us, just as our Savior did. John tells us that God the Son did more than just take on flesh. John tells us that He dwelt among us. Now, a more literal translation of that phrase, he dwelt among us, might be that he tabernacled among us. John is picking up the language of the Old Testament tabernacle here. 
which was the earthly dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. John is using the tabernacle to describe the word's entrance into the world. The tabernacle was how God made his presence known in the Old Testament as he filled it with his glory. And what John is saying here to us is that God is making his presence known fully and personally in Jesus. In the words that we'll sing at the end of our service, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You realize what that means practically, right? For God to take on flesh and live in this world, it means that Jesus lived a life knowing what it was to be hungry and thirsty, tired and weary, despised and rejected. He knows what you experience in this life because he lived and experienced this life. He was a helpless baby, dependent on his mother. He was a toddler who fell and learned to walk. He was a child who probably had to clean the house and learn to make his version of a bed. He was an adorable and probably awkward tween and teen. He was a young person with life's responsibilities piled on top of him. By the time he was an adult in the Gospels, his earthly father, Joseph, had died. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We can rejoice that God the Son took on flesh, that he was born, and that he grew. We rejoice that our Savior can sympathize with us in our weakness because he has lived in this wonderful and very often wearisome world. That's what it means that he dwelt among us. The enfleshment of God, of God the Son, is a deeply mysterious event. And yet it is a true event. How do we know? We know because there were eyewitnesses who beheld his glory. We know because there were eyewitnesses to the reality that God became man in Jesus Christ. Look at what John says there in verse 14. He says that we have seen his Glory, glory as of the only son, uh, only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, John and his fellow disciples beheld the very glory of God. John and the apostles observed, they saw, they understood, and they discerned that in Jesus Christ, the glory of God was revealed. How? They saw his miracles and his mighty power. They saw him do only things the living God can do. Walk on water, feed thousands, heal the sick, raise the dead, and forgive sins. Just as glory took up residence in the Old Testament tabernacle, so in the person of Jesus, glory took up residence, and the disciples, they saw his glory. John describes the glory of Jesus as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples saw this glory at the transfiguration. When the Father declared, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It is in this light that we can understand John the Baptist's words there in verse 15. John the Baptist did not manifest the glory of God like Jesus did. Rather, John was a witness to Jesus' preeminence and priority of the Word made flesh. The Word came before John in time and eternity. God the Son pre-existed John the Baptist. The word came before John in glory and honor. Jesus really does rank before John the Baptist. 
For he fully reveals the Father's glory, and he truly is full of grace and truth. The writer of this gospel, he focuses in on Jesus' grace in verse 16 to 18. It's not hard to see and hear the gratefulness of John, uh, the apostle, there in those words of verse 16. And from his fullness we have all, do you see the next word? Received grace upon grace. Those are the words of a man who knows the darkness of his own heart, and yet who knows by the immense grace of God, the saving light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Herman Ritterboss, a commentator, appropriately declares that the word made flesh is the ever accessible and inexhaustible fountain of grace. That encapsulates really that idea of grace upon grace really well. Friend, the grace of the Lord Jesus is available to you as long as you live. So go to him now and receive grace upon grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus will never run out. So run to the fountain and receive grace upon grace. Like a fountain of overflowing water, constantly being replenished by the new and fresh water, so is the grace that comes from Jesus. This idea of grace replacing an old grace is brought forward there into verse 17. When John writes that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is showing us the development of redemptive history. It's not that the law and grace are at odds with one another. Notice that John doesn't use the word but in between these two statements. Rather, it is that in the incarnation of the Son of God, we are entering into a new stage of salvation history. While God's gracious law was given through Moses to reveal our guilt before God, a new, all-sufficient, all-satisfying grace is coming in Jesus that brings the former grace to its telos, its end and goal. The law of Moses points us to the Messiah. The law shows us that we can't keep God's law. The law shows us that we are guilty of breaking the law. The law graciously shows us that we need to depend not upon our own works for salvation, but upon God for salvation. And God the Father is providing that grace in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the law was the gracious gift of God that was surpassed by an even greater gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he gave us the law of Moses, but praise God that he gave us his son, the one who kept the law for us, as we sang earlier, who fulfilled it, or we have failed. Praise God that he gave us Jesus Christ. And grace upon grace, if you've lived for a millisecond as a Christian in this world, you know it's exactly what you need. You need grace upon grace. It's what the guilty, like us, need. Grace is God's unmerited and unearned favor. Beloved, the law rightly condemns us because we're guilty of sin, but the Lord of love came down, fulfilled the law, and laid down his life to satisfy the law's righteous requirements. And now that Jesus has been lifted up from the grave, he invites us, the guilty, to enjoy God's grace, his unmerited and unending favor. God the Son came to bring you grace. And verse 18 it's the conclusion of John's prologue, and it's an important conclusion. It's one that we cannot miss. John rightly declares that no one has ever seen God. In Exodus 33, verse 20, God made clear that no one could see the Father's face, God the Father's face, and live. The closest that anyone has ever gotten to seeing God 
was Moses. And Moses didn't even get to see God. He got to see the trailing backside of his glory. Still, look at what John says about Jesus in the last half of verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Who other than Jesus, the eternal word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has been at the Father's side for all eternity? Moses wasn't able to see the Father, but Jesus was. In fact, not only was he able to see the Father, he is also, in his very person, the one who graciously reveals the Father. As J.C. Ryle put it, all that mortal man is capable of knowing about God the Father is fully revealed to us by God the Son. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus makes this very claim, saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is why Jesus is supremely glorious and gracious. And Christian, there's one more thing that the coming of the Son of God has secured for you. That's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Christmas, according to John, is full of glory and grace. The glory and grace of Jesus Christ. In the coming of the Son of God, John tells us that the Creator came to rescue us from darkness and to bring us into His marvelous light. Though we deserve to be cast away as spiritual orphans and disowned for our rebellion against the God who made us, against our Heavenly Father, the coming of the Son of God means that we might be received into the family of God when we receive Him. Though we are guilty under the law, the coming of God the Son means that we may know the fullness and the riches of God's grace. And just as John was privileged to behold the glory of Jesus, one day, those who trust in Him will be able to behold His glory too. Christian, one day, you will be able to behold Jesus' glory too. This is what John tells us in a letter to God's children. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, this gospel writer writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, that is when Jesus comes back, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is the grace of glory that we will enjoy at God the Son's second coming, because He secured it in His first coming. What a marvelous gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We, the guilty, may go to God since God in His gracious Son has come to us. Beloved, as the world around you celebrates many wonderful things this Christmas season, make sure you celebrate what John celebrates. Celebrate the coming of God the Son to bring you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Celebrate the coming of God the Son to bring you into God's family. Celebrate the coming of God the Son to bring grace to the guilty. You may go to God because He has come to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for the gift of your Son, your glorious and precious Son. Father, we pray and ask that you would give us hearts filled with joy now for all that Jesus Christ has done and won for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.